Let's just go ahead. You started. Give him praise. Tell him thank you for all that he's done. You know, Christmas is really not about December 25th. In fact, Jesus probably was born in the spring. But it is on the church calendar and a festival. And it's a national holiday and all of that. And if anybody should remember what it's all about, it ought to be people who have been born again by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as time goes on and as the month goes on, remember that it's about the incarnation, God becoming man, putting on flesh so that he could live a perfect life in our place and die on the cross and be punished by God the Father for our sins and conquer death, hell, and the grave. We've got a message that the world, as we saw in Sunday school, doesn't necessarily want to hear, but a message that we need to proclaim. And it's not going to be proclaimed if we don't think about it. And I challenge you to think about that. Come to the musical we do tonight, the choir and the orchestra, Brother Dale and the sound technicians and everybody done such a great job and put in so many hours on that. Come and bring somebody with you. Watch it by live stream. It will be available. And uh, let's have a great time celebrating the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you join me in a word of prayer, please? Father, we're coming to pray now to ask that you might glorify yourself through this service, that you might set our hearts and minds right, that we might hear, that we might understand, that we might obey, and that we might also be an ambassador for Christ everywhere we go, especially this season of the year. Not because it's more important now, but it certainly is easier right now. And may we talk to the world about Jesus that maybe they've heard of, maybe that they think they know, maybe about an event they think they understand, and may you enable us to be able to explain it and to open doors for us to share about what Jesus has done for us and how we were born again and how they could receive the gift of eternal life. I also want to pray for sick people. It's hard, hard, hard to be sick right now. And it seems like on Facebook, all my Facebook friends, high school preacher friends from local uh, to around the country and even other parts of the world, just seem to be dropping like flies with COVID right now. I pray for them. I pray for our medical personnel. I pray for the people that are on the technological end of things. Oh, Father, please bless so that there is relief in sight and you would deliver us from this scourge. Thank you for our governor calling for a day of prayer this past week. I pray you would bless and protect him. And I pray, Lord, that throughout all of this, we would see the hand of God and the favor of God and the grace of God as we battle this pandemic. But Lord, I'm also reminded, I saw someone that lost a loved one to a car wreck. There are other things that are going on right now. And we want to pray for people that are grieving. We want to pay, pray for people that are hurting. We want to pray for people that are afraid, as well as those in our own church who are suffering from COVID. And we ask you, Father, to please show us how to minister. Show us how to have compassion. And we pray, Father, that we would also remember that we do reap what we sow. And so, Father, use us for your glory to help other people as we 
not only present this musical tonight, but also as we do things like helping um, people in emergency rooms with snacks and things like that, to know that they're loved, to know that they matter, and uh, to share the love of Jesus with them. And we thank you, Lord, for men like John Rawson. It's his birthday today. And we thank you that you put men like that in our church. And thank you, Father, for this assembly today. Thank you for people who have come here today to worship you in spirit and in truth. Bless them and bless those who are watching by live stream that they'll know that they're loved. And I pray, Father, that one of these days we'll be able to gather all together again in this auditorium to worship and to praise you. And Lord, my prayer would be that we found out that we've actually gained people as we do that. Gain glory through us, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. You got your Bible? Let's go ahead and let's open them up. Let's go to Exodus chapter 17. The plot begins to thicken. So far we have seen the uh, people of God and about all they can do is talk about water or talk about food or something like that and complain against Moses and poor Moses. All he's done is help them and bless them. Now they come into a sure enough war, a sure enough battle as they face a group of people called We're going to see them as the Amalekites. Who are the Amalekites? Well, the Amalekites were a race of people that hated the Jews. They wanted to exterminate the Jews. And this wasn't a one-time thing. We find Amalekites mentioned throughout the Bible, throughout the Word of God. Here at Rephidim, uh, apparently the Israelis are just minding their own business. They haven't provoked. They haven't attacked. This is not in Canaan. The Amalekites are not defending land or anything like that. They just decide that they're going to attack the Jews. And so uh, Moses is going to show them what the strategy is going to be. But the Amalekites uh, will not go away after this one battle, after they are defeated here. We'll find them showing up again in the book of Numbers And we'll find them showing up in the book of Judges. And in those cases, it's basically the Amalekites uh, aligning themselves with the enemies of the Jews in order to exterminate the Jews. This is not just a skirmish. This is going to be a fight to the death. And when this is all over, there's either going to be a nation of Israel or not. And there's either going to be a nation of the Amalekites or not. This is a fight to the death. This is uh, the group of people that King Saul, the first king of Israel, was commanded to go and fight. And the terms were this, go fight the Amalekites and kill all of them, even their livestock. You remember that? 1 Samuel 15. And so the next day Samuel comes and there's King Saul acting all high and mighty and religious and everything everything and uh, Samuel says did you do what the Lord said and King Saul said oh absolutely we did everything that the Lord said and Samuel goes well then what's that noise I think I hear sheep and then Saul has to backtrack well the people wanted to save the best of the of the flocks and that was for worship they want to sacrifice them 
And uh, that's always good. Say something religious when you're in trouble. Give a religious reason when you're in trouble. And that's when Samuel made that famous statement that we all need to remember and take to heart. Remember? To obey is better than sacrifice. God cares more about your obedience than your religious rituals. You know, some people think they can live any way they want to live as long as they show up for church, as long as they give a tithe or an offering, as long as they do something like that. And that's a word for those people to obey is better than sacrifice, better than your rituals. And it was on that particular day that the Lord made it clear Saul lost his kingdom. His son was not going to inherit his throne. And the family of Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, they were not going to have a dynasty. Another king was on his way. And that king, of course, was King David. But that happened when Saul refused to obey the Lord in regard to the Amalekites. You see, Saul let the king of the Amalekites uh, live. His name was Agag. Well, it's interesting, in the book of Esther, there's a man named Haman who wants to exterminate the Jews. And hundreds of years after Saul, there's a man named Haman, and the Bible calls him an Agagite. What does that mean? He was a descendant of that Amalekite king Agag that Saul didn't want to kill. Haman was an Amalekite. So for what? 600 years or something like that? The Amalekites, every chance they got, no matter how long they had to wait, no matter how long that they had to plan or anything like that, they were ready when the opportunity presented itself to try to exterminate the Jews long before Hitler did anything like that. Well, the people of God are at Rephidim now, and they've been complaining about the water and, you know, all of that stuff. We looked at that the last couple of weeks. And uh, now we find them, sure enough, under attack. They'd never been under attack before. And uh, this is something that is new to them. They're not a military people. They've been slaves all of these years. And uh, they're not really skilled in tactics. They're not really skilled in the use of weaponry or anything like that at all. And so uh, what is it that is going to happen? Well, according to this, they are going to uh, be attacked and they are going to fight. Now, the way they're going to fight, some of it's going to be conventional. And some of it is, of course, not going to be conventional here and uh, the Lord is going to um, allow them to see his power and to see his glory of course and at the same time he is working them and training them there is a lot that they're doing as they are organized as they are fighting and there's going to be some bloodshed in fact so let's look in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 17 and it says, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Now, that's a topic sentence. Now the rest of the, uh, the verses describe how that happened. Uh, verse 9. 
And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out, in other words, draft an army, and fight with Amalek. And tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought hand-to-hand combat with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand, the one with the rod in it, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Well, it wouldn't take you very long if you're Moses to know what you need to do, right? Now, remember, he's an old man. Verse uh, 12. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner, for he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And of course, with the implication, until the promise is fulfilled. Because God always fulfills his promises. So, now we find that the children of Israel are thrown, they're thrust into a war situation. They've never been in that situation before. Now maybe, perhaps they have trained for it to some degree, but training will only go so far. It's necessary, but now they're in the real thing. It is uh, going to be interesting to see how they're going to handle the sword, how they're going to handle bloodshed, how they're going to handle fear, how they're going to handle, uh, you know, different people are going to act different ways. Some people get very enthused when they go into battle like that. Some people are fearful. How will the, uh, the main body of people there, how will they handle all of the different reactions? How will they handle seeing someone, maybe someone in their own family, dying by the sword of one of the Amalekites? How are they going to handle those type of situations? What are they going to do when they're given an order that they think doesn't make sense? What are they going to do when they don't understand everything that's going on? This is where training is so vitally important. And then being able to use that training, uh, this is going to help them. Because when they get into the promised land, they're going to have to fight 
in order to conquer that land. They're going to have to become a military power in order to go into that land and be ready to conquer those various cities. Of course, the Lord is going to be with them and he's going to do supernatural things, but they still are going to be responsible for all of that. So you can see that the Lord allows this to happen like he did everything to get them ready for life in the promised land and particularly did you notice Joshua is mentioned for the first time in this text he's mentioned here because he is going to be the one who secedes Moses and he's going to take over leadership and Joshua is going to be much more of a military commander than Moses ever was this is training for Joshua for that day when he takes over in 40 years and leads them the next generation across the Jordan River into the promised land. So as we've been looking at these things, what have the people of God been going through so far? Well, you know, they get out of Egypt and then they head over to the Red Sea. They get trapped and they go, oh, Moses, what did you do? Bring us out here to die. And then God does a miracle and they walk across on dry land. They have a great celebration. Right after that, then it is the thing to where, oh, we've got water, but it's too bitter to drink. What are we going to do? What did you do, Moses? Bring us out here to die. And so they cut down a tree, put it in the water, and the water becomes sweet. Then they camp by the um, Elam where there is an oasis and there's plenty of everything. Then the Lord moves them out into the desert. Oh no, we don't have enough water. What did you do? Bring us out here to die. And Moses even said, remember, the people are ready to stone me. This is a full-fledged rebellion or mutiny. They just can't seem to get their relationship with God and their relationship with Moses where it needs to be. Have you noticed that? But in this situation that we read about this morning, Moses, as always, is vitally important to the success of Israel, and Israel needs to realize that. But I also think, too, that as Moses is up there, as he is having his hands held up, and he watches his people prevail, he understands how vital they are to his well-being, to his interest. And so it seems to me in this, there kind of becomes a coming together of the leaders and of the people. Up until this point, it seemed like the people were disgruntled with Moses. And Moses, to be honest, pretty angry with the people. But they seem to kind of come together in this particular thing. I think there's something that the Lord would have us learn here. Let's think about it like this. Number one, number one, the trials were simply preparation for the battle. Now by the trials, we mean uh, those things that come along in life that feel like big deals, but they're not. You see, there was never any doubt that Israel would cross the Red Sea. It was just a matter of how were they going to cross the Red Sea? God was not going to abandon them. They were not going to be killed by the Egyptians. That just wasn't going to happen. When you find the people saying, Oh, what are we going to drink and what are we going to eat? I left that one out a while ago. 
Uh, what are we going to do? There was never any doubt. It was always just, how is the Lord going to provide? Not, will the Lord provide? Because God has told them, I'll be with you. And everywhere they went, when they went to the place with no water, who led them there? Not Moses. It was God, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, right? God was with them in all of that. So what was the purpose of those things? God is trying to teach them an important lesson, important for any of us. We've got to walk by faith and not by sight. We've got to walk by fact and truth, not by our emotion, not by our circumstances. Circumstances said, where are you going to get water in the desert? Faith says, God's got plenty of water. That's never going to be an issue. They had to learn to trust God. And notice how every time they would turn against Moses in a pretty vicious way. It's kind of part of being a leader. But you can't have that and be an effective army. You can't have that and be an effective nation. You can't have that and honor God. And so they're learning how to trust the leader that God had given them. That had been, so far, their Achilles heel. That had been their handicap. They didn't really trust or have much confidence in Moses for whatever reason. So what is God teaching them? He puts them through the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Now, I'm sure if we talked to the people, they probably would have said, Oh, the devil's after us. It wasn't the devil. It was God. They might have said, we're in warfare here. It's not warfare. It's just a trial. It's just a testing. James chapter 1 says that when you go through the tests, the trials, the various trials, count it all joy. Because it's the testing, the trying of your faith that brings about patience. Well, that's what these people needed. And so it was not warfare it was just a trial. Can I say to you, some of you are getting tripped up because you're saying the demons of hell are after me and it may be God who is after you. It may be God that is leading you into those situations. It may be God that is stressing you because he is teaching you something and until you learn it, you're not going to really be ready for the battle. You see, for Israel, the warfare hadn't started yet. This is just that pesky repetitive, nagging training that's going on over and over and over and over. Ask a combat veteran, you ever been through training that got boring and monotonous? You ever done the same thing over and over and over until you could do it in your sleep? Just ask them and they'll tell you, yeah, yeah, I've done that. It was necessary because that's what paid off in the battle. Well, some of you, that's what God is putting you through now. And as soon as you learn it, you'll be able to move on. But right now, it's not really anything other than just the trying of your faith. It's preparation for the battle. It's not really the battle. Okay? So that's number one. Now, secondly, think of, uh, of this. Not only uh, that about the trials, but now understand that the battles, now that is where you make the application of everything that you learn. You see, so many times 
We are guilty as God's children. We have our quiet time and we read our Bible. And instead of learning from it and looking for a way to apply it, we forget it. We set it aside. Close the devotional. Close the Bible. Close the notebook. Done for the day. Mark it off my list. I've honored God. Well, I'm glad you did. That's a good thing. But there's got to be a carrying over of this into daily life. How is it going to challenge your thinking? How is it going to change your motives? How is it going to maybe adjust the way you react to something that is going to happen? You don't know what's going to happen, but God does know what's going to happen, and He knows where the attacks are going to be. And actually, someone challenged me on this, and I think they're right. Doing your warfare is not simply repeating a ritualized prayer one time in the morning of your day. It is the application of that prayer and those principles when you're actually under fire later on. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the things you learned in Sunday school this morning? Forget them? Or are you going to apply them in the battle? What are you going to do with what you learn out of this sermon this morning or what you're reminded of? Forget it or are you going to apply it? That's where the battle is. You see, it was in the battle. Moses says, choose some men and, and with swords who can fight the Amalekites. That's the application. You've got to actually, Joshua, get them in and get them ready. Make sure they have their swords. Organize them and tell them what to do and get ready to go out and fight and to do what we've been doing in those drills that have bored the snot out of you earlier. It's time to put faith into action. Faith without works is dead, the Bible says. To obey is better than sacrifice or religious ritual. There comes a point where you've got to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. Nothing wrong with being a hearer unless you're only a hearer of the word. At some point, you've got to be a doer. And so now they're starting the application. I know uh, Joel Seal is here today. I remember when he came back from Afghanistan and we were over at McAllister's uh, across the street and uh, he was sitting there with tears in his eyes telling me about his experiences over there. And you know what brought the most pride to him? is the fact that his men under his command had trained so well that when they actually got involved in a firefight, his men did, he said exactly what they were supposed to do. They just fell into line and did their job and prevailed. It's the way it's supposed to work in God's army too. It's supposed to be that we are so ready and so equipped that when we get into the battle, whenever that may take place, that we fall into line and we just simply do what we are supposed to do. And we are doing it in the strength of the Lord. With the weapons God has given us. Wearing the, army that he, the armor that he has given us. So that we are able to prevail as the Israelis did 
in this battle. Number three, what happens when you apply the truth of Scripture? Application number three brings victory. God is not leading you into defeat. From victory unto victory, right, is what the old song says. He leads us on from one victory to another victory to another victory because this is supposed to be the victorious Christian life. And far too many Christians, they look defeated and they are defeated and sin is overwhelming them. And instead of being more than conquerors, they look and act like they are more than conquered. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. You see, when we begin to apply the truths that we learn, we actually pay attention to them, we actually hold on to them, and we actually do what we're supposed to do. You know where they're going to lead us? They're going to lead us into victory. They're going to lead us to a place to where we are overcomers instead of simply being overcome on all of these. Moses' hands are uh, to be raised up. And Joshua has to choose men, and he has to fight. And Aaron and her, they have to support Moses. All of these things have to come together with those men doing their part. I got a feeling Moses at this point in his life might not have been too good with the sword. He might not have been too fast on his feet. His balance might not have been what it used to be. His coordination might not have been what it used to be. Moses was going to be fantastic on the mountain, but not so good down there with Joshua. And vice versa, if Joshua had stood up there and held up the rod of God, wouldn't that be just as good? No, because that's not what God had commanded. God had a place for everyone to serve. He had a place for everyone to be. And some were going to be foot soldiers. Some were going to be commanders. Some were going to be up on the hill. Some were going to be holding the very rod of God. And some were going to be holding up the arms of the one who held up the rod of God. But everybody had their place. And it's when they all applied what they were supposed to do. They actually did what they were supposed to do. That the Bible tells us in the story. Either Israel prevailed or the Amalekites prevailed. And it might be today that when we look around. The spiritual Amalekites that we fight may be winning. Because you're not in your place. They may be winning because you're not doing what you are supposed to do or have been called to do. I want to challenge you. Take what you know and apply it. There's something for you to do in the work of God and in the army of God. And don't try to do somebody else's job and don't try to critique what everyone else does. Just do what God has called and equipped you to do like they did in this situation. Which brings us to number four. Victory, victory spotlights teamwork. One of the things that I've noticed after a football game, there are some defeats that hurt more than others. And when a team has been particularly humiliated or uh, hurt after a loss, you know what happens? A lot of finger pointing. Well, we didn't get the kind of play we wanted from the quarterback. Well, the line didn't protect the quarterback like they should have protected the quarterback. Well, the coaching wasn't quite up to par. And they began to point fingers, and it's a, like the team is a bunch of individuals. 
But have you ever noticed that when a team wins, when there's a resounding victory, and when the crowds are cheering and everybody is happy and emotions are running high, that's when you tend to hear things like this. Hey, you had a great game and you had 150 yards of rushing, and then that running back will say, oh yeah, but when you have a line blocking for you like I do, how can you miss? Maybe there's a wide receiver and uh, they talk about how many catches he had and how many yards after catch. And then he says, yeah, but when you've got people blocking for you and when you've got a quarterback like I do and when you have a coach who calls the plays like I do, how can you help but have a successful day? And I've noticed that victorious organizations and victorious teams, they kind of pass it around. And they appreciate what other people do. But losers tend to focus on self. Well, at least I did my part. No one else did, but I did mine. And there's division and there's finger pointing and all of that. Do you know that can even happen among God's people? It can even happen in the church. Because in the stories we've been reading, whenever there's not water or food the way the people want, what do they begin to do immediately? They begin to blame, and they begin to point fingers. But when things are working well like they are in this battle, what is going on? Everybody just does their part. And they do it together, and they do it in harmony, and there's no competition, and there's no jealousy, and there's nothing like that going on. They just simply do it, and God blesses, and they all come together. And so they find out later on that they need Moses, and Moses needs them, and they're all working together for the glory of God, and that's how you win the battles. I was at Falls Creek one time when I was at another church, and we had a, about 100 kids there, and I was saying something to some women there. I said, man, Scott does a tremendous job. And one of the women go, well, let me tell you something, Brother Greg, it wasn't always this way. And I go, what? I said, man, he, did, he was a music and youth guy. And I go, he does the best job I've seen combining that together. And she goes, it wasn't always this way. In fact, it used to be really, really bad. And I said, what was going on? She goes, well, there was division, and uh, the kids didn't like Scott. Scott didn't like the kids, and there just was nothing happening. And I said, well, what changed everything? And uh, there were three women there, and uh, Jeanette and Joyce, and I can't remember the third woman's name. They said, we got together, and we started praying. And we prayed a love for our kids into Scott. And Scott began to love our kids. And when Scott began to love our kids, our kids began to love him and things began to happen. And you know what I learned out of that? Instead of criticizing, they prayed. And they figured something out. And this is true with a pastor and a congregation, with elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers, with all of us. Hey, listen, folks. Whenever your leaders do well, you do well. And whenever your leaders are not doing well, there's a tendency that you're not going to do well because we all need each other and we need to make sure we're taking care of each other. 
And in that one situation where Scott began to get a love for the kids, it not only benefited Scott, it not only benefited those women who were praying, it benefited the kids. And everything started happening and pulling together then because people were doing their part. There was a pastor that I heard about that things weren't going well at the church and the church was ready for him to leave. And frankly, he was ready to leave them more than they were ready for him to leave. And uh, somebody came along and they said, what are you doing? I said, well, we're going to do whatever we can to get rid of this bozo. He's a terrible leader and he doesn't know what he's doing. We need somebody else. And he said, don't you realize that if you do that, you give your church a black eye and nobody good is going to want to come to your church? And they said, well, what do you think we ought to do? And they said, love him, take care of him, pray for him, and help him in the work that he does. Start witnessing, start inviting your friends, start giving like never before. Make sure you're here when the doors are open. Make sure that this is a happy place. You know what happened? The church started baptizing people. The church started growing. The church started filling up. The church started building. And last I heard, that pastor retired there. There's something about everybody working for the good of others instead of themselves that turns a whole organization around like it did here. There was teamwork that was involved, not just pointing fingers and saying, Moses, why have you brought us out here to die? Which brings me then to the last point. You know what God says? Hey, Moses, this is great. Go write this stuff down and make sure that Joshua hears about it. Because number five, victorious people tell stories. Losers don't tend to tell stories, do they? But victorious people do. They tell stories about answered prayer. They tell stories about people being saved. They tell stories about people being delivered from alcohol and tobacco and other kinds of drugs. They tell stories about people having needs met. They tell stories about tremendous victories being won and battles that are being won. Losers don't have those kind of stories to tell. But victorious people do. And if we want to impact another generation for Christ, you know what we need? We need some stories. And not just stories to where we're the heroes and this whole generation is just garbage. We need the kind of stories that inspire hope. The kind of stories that inspire faith. The kind of stories that cause our children to say, I want to be that kind of a Christian. I want to be that kind of a mom. I want to be that kind of a dad. I want to be that kind of a deacon. I want to be that kind of an elder. I don't want to be a loser who just occupies something. I want to be a man or a woman of God with battle scars. And I also want to be one with the stories to tell a new generation about the faithfulness of God, like it says in Psalm 78. And so God is setting Israel up now to say, hey, you've been a bunch of whiners, you've been a bunch of babies, you've been divided, you've been pointing fingers, you've been doing all kinds of unproductive things. Now we're going to put your training to the test. And you're going to find out that the battle is not yours, but it is the Lord's. And you had better come together under the Lord. And you'd better do what the old hymn says. Trust and 
obey. Some people try to obey, but they don't really trust. And their heart's not really in it. And some people say they trust, but they never get around to obeying. And I want to tell you, if you don't really obey, you don't really trust. But when the two come together, it is a powerful thing. And when the whole body from top to bottom and bottom to top is one cohesive unit looking out for each other, loving one another, caring for one another, whether it's at the top or the bottom, things begin to happen. And that's when the beauty of a body and the power of spiritual gifts and the working of the Holy Spirit together do things that could never be planned, could never be financed, and could never be put together by any group of people like us because it is done in the power of God and it is done for the glory of God. So find somebody's hands in leadership to hold up. Find somebody, grab a sword and fight next to them. And let them know they're not alone while they fight the battle. Be one of those people that has a story to tell about the glory and the greatness of God that you can pass on to the next generation for the glory of God. Can you say amen to that? Father, as we ask you for this, we pray that you would do it. And let us know that our trials only come to make us stronger and to prepare us for the battles. And the battles are the places where we actually do the things that we say that we believe. And Lord, as we begin to do those things, that's when we start to get blessed. That's when we start to win victories. And it's when we are winning victories that we understand we're a part of a team that you put us in. And we're not to be isolated. We're not to be jealous. We're not to be critical or pointing fingers. We are to work together and we are to help other people do like Aaron and her did. Do what Moses was supposed to do. They didn't just point fingers and say, why can't he hold his arms up? They got underneath him and held his arms up. And Father, as they did that... Then there were amazing things that happened. They had a story to tell worthy of being written down. And Lord, we ask that in our lives, in our families, and in our church, that you might do some things that will be worthy of being talked about because they're victorious, they inspire, they build faith, and they glorify God and teach another generation to walk with him. That's our prayer for us and for Graceway. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you.